Well, that's a weird chapter that we just read, is it not? 1 Corinthians chapter 8, we're, we're starting a new section in 1 Corinthians, or at least a new topic, uh, chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11, verse 1, are all part of the same flow of thought for Paul, and he's going to head a new direction. And in order for us to um, really understand what's happening, I need to give you some, some more background information about Corinth and the, the Corinthian culture, and I need to give you some reminders of some things that are happening in, in the church in Corinth. And I got a book because I have 22 pages here of notes, and that's more than usual. And we're doing communion, so I'm just going to jump right in. In order to understand what's going on in these chapters, let me tell you some things about Corinthian culture that are going to be important. And you probably have guessed this, or maybe we've even talked about it a little bit, but pagan idolatry was huge in the Greco-Roman world, and it was huge in Corinth, and there was a connection between pagan idolatry and food that was sacrificed to those pagan idols that pervaded society and normal societal functions. And here's how it worked. The people would gather at the temples of these different deities for a variety of reasons. I'll get to some of those reasons. And, and in the temple, a sacrifice would be made to the, to the deity. So, for example, in Corinth, there were temples for Isis and, uh, and a god named Asclepius, who was the god of medicine and healing. They would gather at this temple, and then a sacrifice would be made, some animal, and then the meat would be divided into three portions. And some of the meat would be burned to the god or the goddess. Some of the meat or parts of the animal would be used for cultic purposes, worship purposes. They would, they would take the, the entrails and they would try to you know, discern you know, what the gods were thinking by parts of this animal. And some of the meat was eaten at a feast. Now these feasts would be held for any number of social or political reasons... These banqueting halls at the temples of the gods were, in Gordon Fee's words, the restaurants of antiquity. This is just where you gathered to have a public feast, to have a public meeting with your colleagues. And that feast, regardless of how social the gathering was, and non-religious supposedly, the feast was viewed as an honor to the deity of that temple because the, the, the deity was thought to be there. So there's no way to escape eating a feast in the temple in the presence of this idol deity without giving honor to this deity. So that's what you did if you wanted to have a public meal. So if you wanted to be part of a a guild or a club that was associated with your vocation. Let's say you're a metal worker. And, and there are metal worker guilds in Corinth. You're going to have to take part in some of these feasts. Or if you don't have a lot of money and you want to be part of like a, a, a funeral society so that you can ensure that when you die you're going to get a proper burial, you've got to be a part of this funeral club and you're going to have to be a part of these feasts if you're going to do that. It's just what, I mean, it's like going out to dinner with your colleagues. 
Uh, we've, got, we've got a bunch of papyri that we found with invitations to these meals in order to celebrate the first birthday of a child. Here's one. This is, this is uh, from, a, from a papyrus that we have. And it says, it's an invitation. It says, Karaman, that's the name of the person who's inviting, Karaman requests your company at the table of the Lord Serapis. And Serapis is the deity being honored. The table of the Lord Serapis at the Serapium tomorrow. So this is an invitation to the table of this God at his temple, at the Serapium. Tomorrow, the 15th at 9 o'clock. This is just the air they breathe. It's just, this, just this is how you did it. Go have a meal at the, at the temple. And this is what kept social and economic relationships working smoothly. Um, and in all likelihood, most of the Corinthian church was made up of Gentile converts. who just, this, They just grew up in this society. This was totally normal to them. And so the social pressure when you became a Christian to continue going to these feasts was tremendous. And if you removed yourself from that element of society, you can kiss your social status goodbye. So this is a big deal to become a Christian and have to stop going to these feasts. Now, the other piece of cultural information you should know is that the leftover meat that had been sacrificed was then sold to the marketplace. To the public marketplace. So now you're going to the marketplace. You don't know if you're buying meat that's been sacrificed to an idol or not. Or you go to a friend's house or a relative's house who doesn't know the Lord. You don't know where this meat's coming from. So there's a bunch of there's a bunch of questions. How do, how do we as a church body function in light of meat sacrificed to idols? That's the question that the Corinthians are. Asking now, there's a few things we need to know about the church in Corinth, and well, as well. And the first is this: surely this is not the first time that Paul has had to talk about food sacrificed to idols. When he talks to the Corinthians in chapter eight, here, surely he has spent some time talking about food sacrificed to idols in that year and a half that he was in Corinth. The, the, the Greco-Roman world was, was full of idolatry and it made it nearly impossible to function in society without encountering it somewhere. So for the Christians, this issue was an immediate issue. You watch Paul on his missionary journeys and he is not afraid to confront idolatry. It's unthinkable that he wouldn't talk to them about this. You, you might remember in Ephesus, in Acts chapter 19, Paul comes into Ephesus, he's there for two years, and at some point, the people who make idols the, the, uh, for a living, they're really angry because Paul has been teaching, verse 1926, Acts 19.26, gods made with hands are not gods. Well, that's going to put a damper on your business if you make, if you make idols for a living. So, uh, as a result, there's a riot in Paul is causing riots wherever he goes because of his teaching on the need to abstain from idolatry. So surely, Paul has addressed the issue of idolatry. I remember I, I did, I did a, a short-term mission trip to Japan, uh, I don't know, 10 or 11 years ago. I was there for about seven weeks. 
And um, in most Japanese homes, and I, you can inform me. I don't know if there's a, if there's a, if this is in, in Korean homes as well, but they have this thing called a butsudan. Is that, is that familiar to anybody? Okay, the butsudan is like where you keep the family idols. It's like this. It's like an armoire, and uh, it's like gold plated, and they've got they're like tens of thousands of dollars. And I um, I was at a church of a pastor who took a real strong stance on idols. There was kind of this, this question whether or not idolatry in Japan, because it's so ingrained into the culture and it doesn't really mean anything to a lot of people. It's just kind of like a cultural thing. There's this huge question whether or not it's okay for people who come to Christ to maintain their butsudans, where they, where they honor their ancestors and they, they uh, have these, these idols, wooden idols, golden idols, statues in the house. And this pastor said, hey, there are two kinds of churches in Japan. There's the kind that forces its members to get rid of the idols, and there's the kind that says it's just cultural. And for those churches that say the idols in the home is just a cultural thing, he said you can kiss the Holy Spirit goodbye in those churches. So this guy took a hard stand on idols, and there was a Christian in the church body. This pastor's policy was, I will not baptize you until you destroy the boots it on. And so this guy, and to do it was to reject, you know, to reject ancestors and all kinds of, 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 of cultural implications. And so the pastor said, I won't baptize you. New, new convert until you get rid of the boots it on. So we had a boots it on burning at the church. And I was like amazed at the zeal of Pastor Tony as he took an axe to this boots it on. He's like hacking it up. He sets it on fire. It's this huge fire. We're pouring water on the church to make sure the church doesn't burn while we're burning the boots it on. It was this huge ordeal. He had this zeal. And, and I was thinking about it this week and I was like that... Now, the, at the time, I was like, wow, he's, he's like really into this. And then I was just reading through the way Paul deals with idolatry. I go, you know, I think the closest picture I've ever seen to it was Pastor Tony taking an axe to this Butsudan. He will not stand for it. Paul will not stand for idolatry. And so it's unthinkable that he hasn't talked with the Corinthians about this. And so what we're seeing here probably is a little bit of a debate going on between Paul and the Corinthian church because he's having to re-articulate his position and get very nuanced in what's happening here. So it indicates probably that they don't like his teaching and that this isn't the first time that Paul's had to address the issue of idolatry in the church in Corinth. I'll try to point that out as we move along. Here's another thing we need to remember about the church in Corinth. The church in Corinth is a very gifted church, a very spiritually gifted church. Chapter 1, verse 7, Paul says, You are not lacking in any spiritual gift. Very gifted church body. And they have a problem with pride 
in their giftedness. So chapter 4, verse 7, who sees anything different in you? Or what makes you so special, Corinthians? Our giftedness is the implied answer. What makes you so special? Our giftedness. Paul responds to the implied answer. What do you have that you did not receive? Implied answer. Well, well, nothing. If you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? They're boasting in this giftedness because they're so gifted. And particularly, there are two gifts that Paul mentions in chapter 1, verse 5. He says, In every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. Now, Paul talks about speech throughout the letter, specifically in chapters 1 and 2, and then he talks about it again in chapter 14 quite a bit, a little bit in chapter 12 as well when he gets to spiritual gifts. He talks about knowledge throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. So you, you can't help but, but remember now these first couple chapters where Paul is addressing the Corinthian infatuation with the wisdom of the world. They love knowledge. They love wisdom. And Paul warns that God is not known through the world's wisdom. Remember this? You don't know God through the world's wisdom because God, in His wisdom, made Himself known through things that appear foolish to the world. Namely, a crucified Messiah. That's where the wisdom of God is displayed. That's where the power of God is displayed. And it flies in the face of those who are taking great pride in their wisdom and want to boast of their wisdom and want to maintain a certain type of wisdom and a certain type of eloquence. And Paul says, you must stop distancing yourselves from me and my foolish gospel because this is where God has revealed himself in a different kind of wisdom that the world can't see. So you can't help but remember when it comes to Corinth and the love for knowledge that he's already hit this issue pretty strong. A second place he hits it pretty strong is in chapter 12 um, when he's talking about spiritual gifts. And 13, chapter 12, verse 8. For no one, for to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom and to the other an utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. So they have spiritual gifts related to knowledge that's causing some problems in the church. Or 1 Corinthians 13, 8. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Watch out that you don't love your knowledge so much. And the third place that it pops up is in chapter 8 right here. And this is the most concentrated section. And we're going to dive into that right now. Paul has a concern with the Corinthians. And it has to do with knowledge. And I'm going to read the first three verses. Now concerning food offered to idols... We know that all of us possesses, I'm sorry, possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Now, the first thing that Paul does is he introduces this new topic, and the topic is food offered to idols. Now concerning food offered to idols, you remember in chapter 7, 
he starts off, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So the first matter about which they wrote, it's not good for a man to have sexual relations with a woman. Second matter about which they wrote now, Paul gets to it, food sacrificed to idols, food offered to idols. And here's what Paul does. He quotes the Corinthians again. He says, we know that all of us possess knowledge. He's articulating their position. You'll notice the quotation marks. The ESV has put those in there to indicate that it looks like Paul's quoting them. All of us possess knowledge. And in this case, he shares their position to some extent. He says, we know, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Now, what, what's he doing? Why does he have to say, we, we know, we know that? It, it, it appears that the Corinthians are doing something related to food sacrificed to idols, and it's something probably that Paul has said, you shouldn't do that, and they're saying, because of our knowledge, we are enabled to do it. We possess knowledge. And Paul says, I know you possess knowledge. I, I, I affirm that. I affirm that knowledge. They're, they're using this knowledge to justify something that they're doing with regards to food sacrifice to idols as a defense of that. So, we need to know two things. What are they doing with food sacrifice to idols? What, what's the issue? And two, how are they using knowledge to justify that action? Such that Paul has to respond and say, I, I, I know you have knowledge, but, we'll get to the but in a minute. Two things. What are they doing with food sacrifice to idols? Very quickly, number one, we'll see in chapter 8, verse 10. Here's what's going on. If anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple that's what they're doing they're eating in an idol's temple and he goes on to say will he not be encouraged to eat food offered to idols so what are they doing with regards to food sacrifice to idols answer they're eating in the idolatrous temple feasts they're taking part of in them and how does second question knowledge justify that action in their minds? How are they using knowledge to justify the fact that they're eating in temples idols? And the answer to that comes in verses 4 to 6. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So the answer to our question, how are they using knowledge to justify eating at the temples? The answer is, they know that there's only one God in the universe. Paul, we know that these gods aren't gods. They're not real. They're non-gods. You taught us that. 
So when we eat food that's sacrificed to them, it doesn't matter. And they're using their knowledge and their monotheistic conviction, which is true and good, they're using that knowledge to justify eating in idols' temples. Does that make sense? There's only one God. This food is sacrificed to a non-God. It doesn't matter if I eat it. So I'm going to the feast. So that's what's, that's, that's what's going on. And let's see. Paul says... Paul has said no to that participation. This this is a debate. I told you no to this. Yeah, but we know. We have knowledge. And so, what's the problem with their perspective? Paul says there's two problems with the way that they're thinking about it. And the first problem is that it's not loving to other Christians when you do this. And that's what all of chapter 8 is about. It's not loving to other Christians when you do this. Hmm, Why not? We'll come back to that in just a second. The second reason that this is a bad perspective, the second problem with what they're doing, Paul says in chapter 10, it's fellowship with demons. And that's the more fundamental problem. So it's not loving to do this, and it's fellowship with demons when you do this. So, we'll get to chapter 10 sometime down the road. Um, But for today, we're just going to look at chapter 8, and we're going to try to understand why is this not loving to other Christians? What's not loving about this person going to an idol's temple? Why isn't it a loving action? And the answer is verses 7 to 13. Read this with me. However, not all possess this knowledge... But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Okay, there's there's some people in your church, guys, who used to worship idols. Probably most people in your church used to worship idols. And when they eat food sacrificed to idols, guess what's going on in their heart? They can't disassociate it with worship. And they engage in worship of a false god in that act. They don't have the same knowledge that you have. Verse 8. Food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. food, Food doesn't... It's not a food issue. When the food is sacrificed to an idol, it doesn't turn into some sort of like Ouija board food or something. You know, it's just, the food is fine. But take care that this right of yours, and and if if you write in your Bible, I would circle that little word, right. Take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak circle, stumbling block, rights, stumbling blocks, rights, stumbling blocks. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols, which of course for this person is an act of worship in their heart. 
And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. So why isn't it loving? It's not loving because some people who used to be idolaters, when they eat this food, they still are engaging in an act of worship to the deity. And when they see you eating at the temple, they feel encouraged to eat meat sacrificed to idols, which is an act of worship to them of a false deity. So your knowledge is putting a serious stumbling block in the path of another Christian and you're essentially destroying them. And that's why eating in an idol's temple isn't loving to other Christians who have come out of an idol-worshipping background. So what's the Corinthians' problem? Where's this com- This is coming from somewhere. This unloving act is coming from somewhere. What's their problem? What's going on? Well, it's flowing from knowledge. And more specifically, it's flowing from mishandled knowledge. And that's what I want to spend the rest of our time looking at after I make this one qualification. There's a certain stream of thought, and somehow I've been immersed in it in different seasons of my life, a certain stream of thought in some churches, in some pastors, that believes that knowledge is harmful. Believes that Jesus opposes learning and thinking hard. That careful study and intellect and hard work with the mind and research unavoidably destroys spiritual health and opposes relational fellowship with God and unavoidably destroys love. Unavoidably. And it uses verses like 1 Corinthians 8.1, knowledge puffs up as kind of a proof text and just leaves it there. Knowledge puffs up. But love builds up. Therefore, God is opposed to learning and hard thinking. After all, right? Somebody said this to me one time. After all, didn't he choose fishermen? Uneducated fishermen. Well, yes, he did, actually. But when people say things like that, I think it reveals that they probably should just keep reading their Bibles. Just keep just keep reading. I mean, the fishermen, the tax collectors, they didn't stay fishermen and tax collectors. They became disciples, students of the Lord Jesus Christ. They spent every waking hour with their teacher. And he didn't choose them because he wanted to have a team of stupid people. Like, I'll choose all the stupid ones. Like that's some sort of great virtue. I mean, maybe he chose these uneducated men so that he could educate them. So that he had a good blank slate to educate these guys with a true understanding 
And by the way, he's called plenty of brilliant people to himself. Paul was a brilliant man. These guys became writers and teachers and leaders and interpreters of scripture and of history. They spoke before kings. They refuted the other intellects of their day. You, you remember in, in, in Acts chapter 6, um, Stephen is in, engaged in these debates. And this is what it says. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. They couldn't withstand his wisdom. The guy was so sharp and so able to navigate and refute. Matthew wrote a 28-chapter gospel. Peter wrote two of the... Peter, the fisherman, the stupid fisherman Peter, wrote two chapters of our New Testament, highly influenced the writing of the Gospel of Mark as well. John wrote... He was a fisherman too. Wrote five books in the New Testament. One of them, the book of Revelation. Ever read that? It's not an easy read. You've got to think. What about Luke. He's a doctor whose gospel is the result of very careful research from multiple eyewitness accounts. His, histor his historical account of the early church in the book of Acts is impeccable history. But what about Paul, the greatest theologian in Christian history besides Jesus himself? These guys weren't dummies. They thought... Acts 17.2, Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Acts 17.17, 17, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Or Acts 18.4, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. He didn't go in there and say, Jesus Christ is Lord, and then just stood back and was like, Lord, please change their unbelieving hearts. Lord, please change. He, he tried to persuade them. He was arguing with them. He was reasoning with them. Acts 24, 25. And he reasoned with Felix about righteousness and self-control. 2 Timothy 2, 7. Paul says, Think over what I say. Think. For the Lord will give you understanding. The Lord, Only the Lord can give you understanding. And guess how He does it? When you think. <laughs> so, blessed is the man who does not... Blessed is the man who does not walk in the... Help me out here. Blessed is the man who does not stand in the way of sinners nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Blessed is the man who does not... But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He cannot stop thinking about the Bible. So to just say knowledge puffs up and just throw that out there and God 
isn't about learning. It's just, it, it, you, I've only heard it from people who were not immersed in the Bible. So what's the problem with knowledge in Corinth then? Because Paul's the one who says knowledge puffs up. So what's going on in Corinth that would make him say that? I have three things. Let's see, I hope I can get to all three of them. Three things. And the first is this. The Corinthians are arrogant about about their knowledge. Corinthians are arrogant about their knowledge. It's just such a big deal. Knowledge is so big, and their way, the way they're using their knowledge has left them puffed up or, or proud. So in verse 2, Paul says, chapter 8, verse 2, um, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Now, the, the verb um, imagines that he knows something, the verb that's used to that we translate that way is um, in the perfect tense. Now, here's what a perfect tense is. Let's we'll do some grammar. The perfect tense in the Greek language is a past completed action that has present results. Like, we would say it in English, like, I have graduated from high school. Past completed action with present results that I am now a graduate because I graduated. The Greek can just throw that into one, one verbal form. And here it says, I have come to know. One, one commentator translates it, if anyone thinks he has achieved some piece of knowledge. Paul is not criticizing the um, ability to have confidence or convictions. What Paul is criticizing is the confidence that they have comprehensive knowledge on these issues. When in truth, they really only understand part of the bigger picture. And yet, they're rejecting apostolic instruction and, and fronting their knowledge as the reason why they're doing it. They think they have come to know all that needs to be known on this issue. They don't need to hear Paul any further. The Corinthians are saying, we know that there's no God except one. We're monotheists. So it doesn't matter. We're going to attend the feast. And Paul says, if you think you have perfect knowledge on the issue, then it proves that you're self-deceived. You don't really understand as you should. You're correct. There's only one God. That's a good, true bit of truth. But you're proud and you're missing something crucial. And it's in verse 7. Not all possess this knowledge. See, see, not everybody in your church body, when they eat food offered to an idol, not all, not everybody, maybe at some level they know there's only one God and, and He's the only real God and all the other gods are non-gods, but in their experience, they have not come to know that there is one God. And they're still, they're just wrestling with their backgrounds. Paul says, 
you don't know everything you think you know, Corinthians. So this is more than a conviction that the Corinthians have. This is more than just a strong conviction that there's one God. It's an unwillingness to consider other important, relevant factors. It's a claim to total comprehension. You can be confident of the trajectory of what you believe. You can be confident without claiming to have absolute comprehension. You can have a type of certainty about the reality, the reality, a type of certainty about the reality that there is only one God or that Jesus rose from the dead or that the Bible is the Word of God and still lack comprehensive understanding of what these things really mean and what the implications are for your life. There's always greater understanding to be had. If we had to have, listen to this, if we had to have comprehensive, rationalistic proof in order to be sure of the claims of the Bible, then none of us would have ever become Christians. Because nobody has comprehensive rationalistic understanding of anything. Not comprehensive. There's always more to learn. But that doesn't mean that you can't be sure. It doesn't mean you cannot be sure. Why? Because the Holy Spirit can make us sure. The Holy Spirit can cover the gap. Your rationalism can take you so far. And then there's a gap between how far your rationalism can take you and certainty. You can make a good case, but you can only go so far. You cannot get certain from rational capacities. So how do you bridge that gap? Only the Holy Spirit. He must reveal Himself. C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis thought hard. Rationalism, rationalism, rationalism. And he got to a certain point and he tells the story of how he was at this point and he went, I think it was with his brother, he went for a motorcycle ride with his brother and he said, I don't know what happened. I left from wherever they left from, not believing in Christ. And when they, by the time we arrived, I believed. Who, who bridges that? It wasn't rationalism that bridged the gap. It was the revelation of, of God through the Holy Spirit. So you don't have to know something about God in its totality in order to know that it's true. God bridges the gap. So guess where we live? We live in the tension of being absolutely sure of what we cannot prove with our post-enlightenment rationalism. Say that again. We live in the tension of being absolutely sure of what we cannot absolutely prove with our post-enlightenment rationalism. Which means that we have great confidence, great 
confidence in the teachings of the Scripture and in a God that we truly know. We have a solid hope and a firm faith because God has truly, truly revealed Himself to us. There is a type of certainty that we have because we have seen Him. Faith is certain about those things that it has not perceived with the eyes of the mind but with the eyes of the heart. Certainty and Yet, it means that we are to be ever mindful that we have not exhausted our understanding of God. Here's where the Corinthians went wrong. They they thought they had exhausted it. And that they, they didn't realize that their strongest convictions can always use some polishing. There's always more to learn. It means that when it comes to knowledge, we can have both great faith and humility. Same time. It means that we can have great confidence and teachability. And the Corinthians were very confident, but not teachable. Why? Because they had already come to know. They were arrogant about their knowledge. And that was the first problem with their knowledge. The second problem with their knowledge was that They were selfish with their knowledge. Not only did they think that they had come to know, but they were then selfish in the way that they applied that knowledge. Verse 9, Take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. If you eat food that's sacrificed to a non-god, then it doesn't really do anything to the food, so... I guess feel free to ingest that food. It's not going to like do anything to you. And that knowledge in some sense gives you a right, a freedom to eat that kind of food. But, but make sure that you don't use that right in such a way that causes other people to stumble. It, it, it's actually leading people into sin. But the Corinthians, they don't care. Because they care about their rights. That's just, a, that's just a selfish way to live. That's a selfish way to use knowledge. It exalts personal rights over the well-being of others. And, and, and let's just say you really do have the right to eat in an idol's temple. Which is just hypothetical because in chapter 10, Paul says it's fellowship with demons. But let's just say that you have the right to do that. Once it's really clearly leading other people to worship idols, don't you think you should stop? I mean, that's bad. We're not talking about preferences here. We're not talking about two people in the church have different opinions on political issues or education or whether or not to eat refined sugar or, you know, something like that. We're talking about people who are doing things that are really leading other people into sin. That's this issue. And you know you're in trouble when you won't surrender your freedom and your rights when it's causing other people to sin, when it's leading other people into sin. Paul's going to spend all of chapter 9 dealing with that issue. So we'll come back to it. Okay, so with their knowledge... They are being proud with their knowledge. They are being selfish. And the third thing they're doing with their knowledge is they're being tricky with it. 
They're being tricky with their knowledge. They're using it as a justification for sin. Both in the sense that they're, they're sinning against others in the church and in the sense that they're finding a way to do something idolatrous. They're, 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 playing, they're playing games with their knowledge. They're playing devil's advocate or something like that. They're, they're lacking the humility to take God at his word through his apostolic messenger. They are trying to avoid standing firm on a tough conviction. And you know how you can spot this? I've seen this so much. I've seen it in my own life. And I've seen it in others. You can spot it when the Bible says something that calls your life or your culture into question and you squirm to get free using your knowledge to make it happen. Your knowledge of people, your knowledge of society, your knowledge of the Bible. I heard of one instance very recently about a man who is using Scripture in horrendous ways to justify a sinful lifestyle. It's destroying his family. He's playing games. I'm not talking about people who have genuine questions or, or, or the student of the Bible who's trying to think hard and get good answers to hard questions because the Bible has hard text. I'm talking about the en vogue, scholarly and cultural, open-minded, contrarian, doubt-filled skepticism, this this prideful need to always have some new twist or some new take or fresh idea on how the Bible should be understood so that you never really have to take a hard stand on anything that's unpopular. Usually it means not being very clear in what you're saying. It conveniently leaves the door open to other views that you can avail yourself of when you need to in the right context. I've seen this and I've done this. I, there was a whole season in my life where I just, I, I was just always just squirming free of stuff. And it sounds so smart and wise and, and balanced and insightful and mature and progressive and open and emergent. And it's total baloney. Jesus hates it. It's a lack of submissiveness to the Scripture. It uses Scripture to dodge Scripture. Romans 1.18 says, people use their unrighteousness to suppress truth. You've got a mind problem because you've got a heart problem. You have, in your unrighteousness, suppressing truth to justify sin. Hey, we all do this. This is, this is what we naturally tend to do. It's called rebellion. And I have a passage here from a, a recent book where I think it just puts this on display. I'll read this to you. This is very tricky. So I'm going to read it to you, uh, and then I'll try to, by God's grace, pr protect you from being tricked here. This is an attempt to um, convince you 
that everybody goes to heaven. If the message of Jesus, he says, is that God is offering the free gift of eternal life through him, a gift we cannot earn by our own efforts, by our own works or good deeds. Sounds good. If the message of Jesus is that God is offering the free gift of eternal life, and all we have to do is accept and confess and believe. Now watch out. Aren't those verbs? He says. And aren't verbs actions? Accepting, confessing, believing. Those are things we do. Does that mean then that going to heaven is dependent on something I do? How is any of that grace? How is that a gift? How is that good news? And you're duped. That is really tricky. Very deceptive. There are three premises in the argument. Premise number one, if he gets you to buy all three, you're trapped. Premise number one, he gets you to admit that eternal life is a free gift. Yeah, that sounds, of course. Two, he gets you to admit that you don't have to work in order to receive that gift. Okay, yeah, that's good. And here's where he gets you. He gets you to admit that accepting, confessing, and believing imply work because they're verbs. And verbs are action words. Now that's very deceptive. These are action words in the grammatical sense. Talking grammar, these are verbs. That's that's totally true. But they are not what the Bible considers works. Paul himself puts believing and works on two different pages. We're justified not by works of the law, but through faith. Believing. Now, if you don't have like 20 minutes to sit down and work through the three different premises, and you're duped. You're going to read this book, totally popular book right now. The conclusion that he, if you buy those three, here's the conclusion. Therefore, your whole notion of Christianity is built on a contradiction. It says you don't have to work, and then it tells you that you have to work. All this time, you stupid Christian, you thought you had to accept, confess, and believe in Jesus in order to be saved. But if that were true, he says, then it wouldn't be grace. Implication, you don't have to confess, accept, or believe. Because you don't have to do anything. And therefore love wins. Is the argument. That's a game. That is a slippery, deceptive game. And it is 
a suppression of truth to get out of a hard teaching. Hey, the doctrine of hell is a hard teaching. And there's a lot of hard teachings in the Bible. We're Christians. The Bible is going to confront your life. I want you to say this with me. Say, the Bible will confront my life. My Bible will confront my life. On the count of three. One, two, three. The Bible will confront my life. It's going to do it. You can expect it. You're a sinner. God is righteous. The Bible is going to confront your life. I don't want to be, I don't want to play games. I don't want you to play games. When the Bible tells me what to do, I want to ask God for the grace to do it. I want to conform. I don't want to squirm. I don't want you to squirm. So let's be careful with the ways that we use our knowledge, New Hope. Knowledge is not for the sake of making us proud, but humble. Knowledge is not for the sake of preserving selfish rights, but for the sake of loving others. Knowledge is not for the sake of evading God's word, but for the sake of guiding us in truth. So let's be a people who want to be using our knowledge to know God, to bless people, and to conform to his ways. Let's pray. As we pray, I want to go ahead and invite the worship team to come up. Father, we we don't want to play games with the Bible. We don't want to try to justify our sinful lifestyles with knowledge. We don't want to use the brains that you have given to us to play games. We don't want to use them to preserve selfish rights that will hurt others. Rights that turn into sin when we're not loving others. We don't want to be arrogant about what we have come to know. We want to have firm conviction. But we want to know that we could always use some polishing. Help us to rightly use knowledge. Help us to think well. Help us to bear fruit, the fruit of love. Help us to not be puffed up.